Chapter Three of Phillips Brooks by Mark Antony DeWolf Howe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In eighteen fifty nine, Phillips Brooks finished his seminary course, was ordained deacon on July first by Bishop Meade of Virginia, and immediately took charge of the Church of the Advent in Philadelphia. He would not pledge himself at first to more than three months of service so honestly doubtful was he of his ability to satisfy the parishioners. How seriously he took the work to which he felt called, we may infer from his words spoken nearly twenty years later. I can remember how, as I looked forward to preaching, every book I read and every man I talked with seemed to teem with sermons. They all suggested something which it seemed as if the preacher of the gospel ought to say to men. What he felt this something to be, we may know from these other words of his concerning the true interpreter of God to men. He looks into their faces, as if he saw behind each of them another face, which shone through theirs and gave to their sordidness its dignity and value. With such conceptions of the work he had to do, together with his inborn qualifications for doing it, there was, of course, but one possible ending for his first three months at the little church in the unfashionable portion of the city where the advent stood. The young rector pledged himself to the parish for a year, and, when this was done, remained for about one year more in the same place. He was ordained to the priesthood on May 27, 1860. During his rectorship of the advent, he was wont to say, he received from a German, for the only time in his ministry, a refusal of admission to a house he wished to visit as a clergyman. But here, on the other hand, may be placed the familiar anecdote of his finding a poor mother taking care of a sick child, for whom he insisted upon caring himself, while the woman went for a walk in the fresh air. It is also of this time that a clerical contemporary and lifelong friend tells of walking home from church one day with Mr. Brooks after he had preached a sermon intended to bring consolation into lives that were crushed with sad experiences all unknown to him. The friend expressed a wonder at his ability to speak as he had spoken of things of which he must be ignorant and his answer says the friend comes back to me often with the little preluding laugh that never hid his earnestness from those who knew him oh well don't you think a fellow can put himself in other people's place and see how they must feel this was a power which he never ceased to exhibit knowing the burdened man's burden just because of the unpressed lightness of his own shoulders feeling the sick man's pain all the more because his own flesh never knew an ache these words from his sermon the choice young man written many years later explain more fully than his off-hand answer on the philadelphia street the power of comprehending sympathy which he always expressed to rich and poor in public and in private he gave freely of the fruits of his power and often, we may be sure, without knowing how much he gave. To its value for those who needed it most, there was perhaps no better testimony 
than that which dr holmes after a great bereavement late in his life paid to the preacher by leaving his own church and coming sunday after sunday to hear what the sermons of phillips brooks might say to him it was a fortunate circumstance for phillips brooks and for philadelphia that at the time of his coming there dr alexander h vinton the friend who already more than once had exerted the right influence at the right moment was the rector of holy trinity church one of the most prominent parishes of the city from the very first dr vinton believed in phillips brooks accordingly he often asked the young man to occupy his pulpit on sunday afternoons the two results of this preaching were that many members of the holy trinity parish went frequently to the distant church of the advent for evening and other services and that when dr vinton in eighteen sixty one was called to st mark's in the bowery in new york mr brooks was asked and asked again to take his place and after less than three years in the ministry found himself in charge of the important church on rittenhouse square the prompt obtaining of high military rank by some of the youths who entered the civil war was hardly more remarkable than this rapid elevation of the young clergyman the civil war was well begun when phillips brooks took up his new duties they and it and he were soon found to occupy the closest possible relations to one another in his own definition philadelphia represented the temperate zone of religious life but it lay far too near the equator of warfare to be temperate in all things connected with the rebellion the number of persons more or less openly in sympathy with the south was large especially in the walks of society from which the congregation of holy trinity was mainly drawn i have heard it said of another episcopal church in philadelphia that in the war time the clergyman could not read the prayer for the president without causing a rustle of silken skirts worn by ladies who insisted at this point upon rising from their knees to set oneself in public and in private uncompromisingly on the side of the north was a far more difficult thing in philadelphia than in boston but such a new englander as phillips brooks could stand only where he stood upon the questions of that day and no new englander could have stood there more firmly one who was closely associated with him then and in earlier and later days has written thus of his attitude he was ever ready to speak to work to set others working he encountered blizzards of prejudice and virulence vestrymen protested judges who were parishioners ceased to be judicial rich pew-holders clamored pot-house politicians raged fine ladies carped and sneered pleaded and cajoled none of these things moved him he went his way spoke his word did his deed and bore himself like a simple king to the same authority we owe the record of an outward deed in which phillips brooks bore a characteristic part lee's army before harrisburg was supposed to be threatening philadelphia itself yet the city was preparing absolutely no means of defence 
A few clergymen, among them Mr. Brooks, decided one Monday morning that something must be done at once, and that they must do it. It was the time when a number of ministerial societies were holding their weekly meetings. To all of these were sent copies of a paper in which the clergy of the city should offer their physical services for its defense. The response was immediate. About a hundred ministers, with Mr. Brooks and an aged Presbyterian at their head, presented themselves at the mayor's office and begged to be employed in throwing up earthworks. While waiting for orders, they bought spades and other necessities. But what was more important, the municipal authorities and the laity took the hint and set about the work they were ashamed to leave entirely in clerical hands. When the good news from Gettysburg reached Philadelphia, Phillips Brooks interrupted the morning service to announce it to his people. On the following Thanksgiving Day he preached on the mercies of reoccupation. It needed the vision of an optimist to see much of good in those troubled years, and precisely what the title of the sermon meant many must have been puzzled at first to know. But he did not leave them long in doubt that the re-entrance into the principles and fundamental truths of the nationality which they inherited seemed to him to outbalance many losses, and that the reoccupation of the disused duties and privileges of justice and liberty and human brotherhood was indeed a mercy. No less than for all these things was he thankful for Abraham Lincoln, so honest, so true, so teachable at the lips of the Almighty. Between Lincoln and Phillips Brooks many men have taken pleasure in tracing spiritual resemblances in the largeness of their sincerity, in the simplicity and directness of their natures, there were indeed certain elements of likeness. The words which the preacher applied to the president might without too great a strain have been said of the preacher himself. There are men as good as he, but they do bad things. There are men as intelligent as he, but they do foolish things. In him goodness and intelligence combined and made their best result of wisdom. But for one man to recognize the power and to feel strongly drawn to the personality of another is not necessarily to be like that other, and it may fairly be questioned whether the resemblance between these two men will bear any close analysis. Certain it is that Phillips Brooks lacked nothing of appreciation for everything that Lincoln was and did. One who spent the morning with Mr. Brooks after the news of the President's assassination came has written to me, His grief was intense, in fact, too great to express. Yet he soon expressed it in a noble eulogy delivered in Holy Trinity Church. From this it is worth while to transcribe the few words which show perhaps most clearly how positive were the convictions of the preacher on the chief issue of the Civil War. By all the goodness that there was in him, by all the love we had for him, and who shall tell how great it was, by all the sorrow that has burdened down this desolate and dreadful week, 
I charge his murder where it belongs, on slavery. I bid you to remember where the charge belongs, to write it on the doorposts of your mourning houses, to teach it to your wondering children, to give it to the history of these times, that all times to come may hate and dread the sin that killed our noblest president. Are these the words of the all-tolerant Phillips Brooks? Yes, and all the more his for illustrating clearly his belief that the truest tolerance is based upon a full knowledge of the evils which it is called upon to bear. Entirely, too, are the words his own in another way, for they show the fullness of his appreciation for the man whom it was not too fanciful to place, quite apart from resemblances, beside and with the few to whom Phillips Brooks owed a personal debt for the formation of his completed manhood. When the war was over, and Mr. Brooks had taken the part we have seen him play in the Harvard Commemoration Service, a part perhaps the more strenuous because of the loss of one of his brothers in the great struggle, he stood in sore need of rest, and proceeded at once to take it in the first of his many journeys abroad. For nearly thirty years he made it his practice to go abroad every other summer, serving his parish each alternate year through all the months when many city clergymen are following their congregations into the country and woods. Two of his journeys, his first one and another in 1882-83, lasted each for more than a year. It was on the second of these long journeys that he went as far as India, and in the summer of 1889 he and his friend, Dr., now Bishop, McVicker, made their way to Japan. For most clergymen many of these travels would have been impossible, but Mr. Brooks had the wisdom to put his freedom from all domestic cares, and the means which were always at his disposal, to the best of uses. Home-keeping youth have ever homely wits, and, as the years went on, there is no doubt whatever that the effect of contact with humanity in all countries and under all conditions was to make broader and broader the sympathy of Phillips Brooks with all mankind. He was making a good beginning when, out of his first experiences in foreign lands, he wrote to a lifelong friend, Oh, Charles, you should be over here, if only to see what a little thing the Protestant Episcopal Church looks, seen from this distance. In this first journey of all, it is highly interesting to observe what the young traveler took with him. Study and understanding had prepared him to receive impressions which would have been utterly lost upon the unfit. Especially in Palestine does he reveal his preparedness for travel, for all his letters show him as the close student of the Bible, walking for the first time among the scenes which had already become essentially real to him. Because he took so much, of course he was capable of bringing back the more. Living memories of many places and things returned with him delightful recollections of delightful persons, Mrs. Kimball, Mrs. Gaskell, Dean Millman in England, 
motley in vienna story in rome engaged upon the statue of edward everett now standing in the boston public garden but then failing to impress the young traveller with its dignity for he has only got one trouser on to quote from a letter to mr brooks father and is very much in the condition of diddle diddle dumpling my son john most serious on the other hand are the impressions made by certain sights at dresden he sees the madonna di san sisto and writes home i will not say anything about it because there is no use trying to tell what a man feels who has been waiting to enjoy something for fifteen years and when it comes finds it as something unspeakably beyond what he had dreamed a beautiful copy of the picture by the way hung in front of his study desk through all the last years of his life in egypt he says i went and stood in the shadow of the sphinx and looked up into her vast stone face if the pyramids are great in their way she is a thousand times greater in hers as the grandest and most expressive monument of a religion in the world in eighteen seventy nine thirteen years later he uses his remembrance of the dresden madonna and the sphinx to illustrate in a lecture to philadelphia divinity students the contrasts between the religions of the west and of the east the sphinx has life in her human face written into a riddle a puzzle a mocking bewilderment the virgin's face is full of a mystery we cannot fathom but it unfolds to us a thousand of the mysteries of life it does not mock but blesses us the egyptian woman is alone amid the sands to be worshipped not loved the christian woman has her child clasped in her arms enters into the societies and sympathies of men and claims no worship except love these citations will justify themselves if they show with what permanence and to what great purpose the impressions of mr brooks travels entered into the work of his life perhaps even a more vivid showing of the interrelation between what he saw and what he thought could be made by comparing passages from his letters from india with his uttered opinions at home in unwavering support of foreign missions our present concern however is with the rector of holy trinity church philadelphia who did not return to his parish until the autumn of eighteen sixty six the long rest fitted him for taking up his duties which to a rare degree were also his pleasures with great heartiness in the absurd demonstrations in philadelphia against letting negroes ride in the street cars mr brooks was found precisely where his path through the wartime must have led him on the side of the race which lincoln had set free regarding another phenomenon of philadelphia streets we are told that he rejoiced in the fact that the city was so laid out with streets of small houses between the avenues of the rich that the poor could never be lost to sight for them and for the rich he labored with an equal zeal as the report of these labors spread abroad 
the opportunities to go elsewhere began to arise. One of them brought with it the possibility of a quieter life in the presidency of Kenyon College at Gambier, Ohio. But the quieter life never appealed so strongly to Mr. Brooks as the turmoil of the city, and in this case there was an additional reason for declining the proffered place. His chin dropped into his collar, writes a friend, who recalls the act of decision, and he said, No, they wouldn't let me have free swing, and I wouldn't take the post unless they did. The call to assume the rectorship of Trinity Church, Boston, must have carried with it a more hopeful promise of the free swing, for in November of 1869 he began the rectorship which filled the greater part of his active life, and is more closely associated than any other work with his name. End of chapter 3